0: Welcome
1: to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
0: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. How are you doing today, Robert, on this fine summer morning? Well, I'm doing great because we're, we're about to jump into our, our annual summer reading episode.
1: Every year I feel like we end up doing these too late in the summer. And everybody's already gone to the beach. So their beach reading time is gone and they ended up just reading whatever was in the beach house they went to or something. <laughs> I bet you've had that experience before.
0: Um, I've never been forced to to read the books in the beach house, but I always check them out. It's always – it's always, I always approach – when I find the, the stash of books, uh, it always builds up a sense of excitement because – you, you pretty much know what to expect. It's going to mm-hmm. be your Tom Clancy books, right? It's going to be your, your Daniel Steele.
1: Why is it that everybody who owns beachfront property is into Tom Clancy? I don't,
0: that I don't know. That is a
1: strange confluence of characteristics of a person.
0: It does seem like the, the the type of person who owns a beach house – seems to have Tom Clancy books, or is it the other way around? People who go to beach houses tend to bring Tom Clancy books with them and then leave them.
1: Like if you're into kind of uh, like like Cold War military technology and uh, and nuclear submarines and stuff like that, you just end up with a lot of extra money and real estate investments.
0: I don't know. But you can say, well, yes, Tom Clancy books were highly popular. Mm -hmm. But why do I see more Tom Clancy books seemingly – without actually doing like a scientific study of this, why does it seem like there are more Tom Clancy books than say Stephen King books or Michael Crichton books? Though I have to say that occasionally I get lucky and find some some cool gem, like some 70s horror or uh, – oh, the, the last time I went to a beach house, uh, there there happened to be some uh, some German books, mm-hmm. uh, like German language uh, books. I, I can't even remember what they were offhand, but it oh, was exciting to find something new.
1: I'm just remembering. I think one time you told me about going to a beach house in the summer and finding a werewolf spy book.
0: Yes, yes. Undercover that was, werewolf. That was one I think I had to take a picture of. I, uh-huh. I, I, I cannot remember the, the author um, – Thank you. Or the title, but it was I think it was a seventies or early eighties publication.
1: Well, anyway, there's still time in the summer, still time to read summer reading books. So we're here with our picks for the summer of twenty eighteen. But before we get into that, I think we need to
0: remind you real quick that we're about to go on tour. That's right. We have a we have a a, a mini tour coming up, and this is gonna be in September. Specifically, September fifth, we're gonna be in Boston at the Armory. September sixth, we're gonna be in New York City at the cutting room. September seventh, we're gonna be in Philly at at Underground Arts. And then on the 9th, we're going to be in Washington, D.C. at Union Stage. So if you've ever wanted to experience Stuff to Blow Your Mind live, if you want to check out a a unique Stuff to Blow Your Mind experience, uh, this is the opportunity to do it. This is going to be a special episode. Uh, We're really excited about what we're putting together.
1: Yeah. So if you are interested in coming out to see us, you can click on the tour tab on our website at StuffToBlowYourMind.com, and you can go
0: ahead and get your tickets today. Yeah, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com, Live Shows tab right at the top. Click on it and buy your ticket. Get ready to go. But now back to summer reading, which which really this whole episode is always like the, 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 the final minutes of an episode of Reading Rainbow. Do you remember watching Reading Rainbow as a child? Well, of course I remember it, but what happened in the final minutes? You would have just a, a few different children would present a book that they had read and loved. And essentially it was like a mini book report. Mm-hmm. Over the years it's we've had different host arrangements. Sometimes we've had guests, mm-hmm. either guests from other How Stuff Works podcasts or guests from outside the uh, organization. Uh this this year it's just uh just Joe and uh and, and me, but uh, still uh we have some some really exciting books to discuss here. Uh some books that some many of you out there have already read. Uh others others of you are going to be introduced to some new reads for the first time. All mine are Tom Clancy books, spoiler <laughs> alert. One quick caveat, this is going to be a two-parter. Uh, so this is going <laughs> to be— We started talking about books, and then we went for two hours. Yeah. So uh, sorry, or or I guess not sorry about that. Everybody loves uh, talking about books and uh, cool concepts. So yeah, be prepared. This one's going to be split in two. You know, uh, I don't know about you, Joe, but personally, the nonfiction part of summer reading is always a challenge for me because I find that almost all of my nonfiction reading is usually podcast research. Yeah. And if I stumble across a new fiction, a nonfiction book that I'm interested in, then I'll probably shoot to cover it on an episode. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So, um, so this year I made sure that I picked out something uh, that I'd been meaning to read for a long time, and something that felt timely. Uh, you know, especially given some of our recent episodes. Yeah, I know what you mean. Cho-
1: choosing which ones to talk about can be difficult because, for example. Uh one of my favorite books I read this year I know was was Carl Zimmer's awesome book She Has Her Mother's Laugh, which mm-hmm. we interviewed Carl about on the podcast in June. And so you're thinking about that, and I say, Well, that's that is definitely one of my favorite books I read this year, but we already did an episode about it. So it doesn't make sense to like really recommend that again. Yeah. Uh so I, I tried in this episode to pick books that I hadn't talked about or hadn't talked about much on the podcast already.
0: Yeah. Uh, likewise, I had, a, I had a similar problem with with fiction choices, because when it comes to literature, I'm kind of a I guess I'm kind of a selfish lover. I will. Um, I, if I really dig a work of fiction, I'm probably going to talk about it on the show. Yeah. So both of my fiction choices uh, this year, uh, my main choices that I made, uh, I have discussed at least in passing um past episodes, but I haven't really, I think, uh, you know, chewed them up properly uh, on the show Um uh, but on the other hand, one of my f- absolute favorite books from the last year was uh, R. Scott Baker's *The Unholy Consult*, and we actually had Scott on the show to talk a little bit about that book. So uh, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it anymore here. Is that the one a bunch of people were mad about? Well, I don't know. A bunch of people were mad about. There was some division among the the fans uh-huh. uh, about like what the ending meant. You know, it, it stuck. It stuck with you, and I felt like it was very much in keeping with the uh, trajectory of all the previous books. Well, let's uh, get right into our book
1: selections. All right. Robert, I think you are starting with a classic, aren't you?
0: Yeah, a classic that I had I had never read. Uh, uh, so this was a first time for me, but I was well f- familiar with it by reputation. The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark by Carl Sagan from 1995. Uh, so the author here, of course, is Carl Sagan, noted uh, astrophysicist, author, Cosmos television host, and one of the most important and enduring science communicators of the 20th century. And now th- this is one of those big – this is like one of the great science communication tomes. Yes, yeah. Uh, and and this was also the next to last book written in Sagan's lifetime as he died of pneumonia in 1996 after a, a battle with cancer. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I picked it up recently following our most recent episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Science Communication and the dangers uh, particularly of the illusory truth effect.
1: Oh, yeah. So we had a two-parter on that recently, and that's the the concept that's now been shown in multiple studies replicated over and over that simply exposing somebody to a claim and then repeating that claim over and over actually does provably make people believe the claim more.
0: Yeah, and it really made us think about – about the show, about some of the things we talk about. Sometimes we talk about erroneous theories or, mm-hmm. um, uh, say, radical hypotheses, and and you know to what extent uh, should we do that to you know what what is what is our responsibility what as a as science communicators i think i have come away
1: thinking i thought about this a lot since the episode i think i've come away thinking as i originally did that it doesn't make sense to say we can never discuss bad ideas on mm-hmm. the podcast i mean that's that's a lot of what we do and, and that's, that's an a important lot of what science is, yeah yeah that's a, it's an extremely important thing to do it's not like once an idea looks unlikely or has been disproven you should never speak of it. But I think the the point is that whenever you speak of those things, you should make clear that simply repeating the thing and then saying it's not true isn't the whole story, that you give the alternative account, that you get that you analyze, you explain, you, you give people context that's memorable so they can
0: understand what the truth is. Yeah. And so, you know, and I've been thinking about this as well, and I realized this would be a perfect book to to, to seek out again, you know, given Sagan's expertise in science communication and his willingness to engage in uh, the sort of open-minded yet skeptical thinking that we really try and pull off on the show. So I picked it up and, uh, and checked it out. So in this book, Sagan set out to explain just what science offers us as a culture, how pseudoscience and magical thinking work against it, and indeed why many of us are sucked into these ideas when science can both better amaze us and, I mean, and improve our, our lives and our understanding of the world.
1: That That is one of the key tragedies that the science communicator has to observe over and over again, is that like, Say you see somebody get sucked in by ancient aliens literature, mm-hmm. and they, uh, you know, they, they they say you can't explain the pyramids unless aliens came in and did it. One of the worst things about that is it's not just wrong, but it cuts you off from understanding the fascinating reality of how ancient people with very limited technology accomplished this amazing feat of engineering and construction. The, the truth is actually more interesting, but it's it's sometimes harder to communicate how interesting it is pseudoscientific ideas are often more uh interesting in a shallower way they have got something that can grab you in one sentence you know what i mean yeah
0: so Sakin makes this point as well that it is this uh, inauthentic shortcut to awe mm-hmm. when the real story can provide awe it's just it's just more difficult to
1: show how it provides awe
0: yeah in the the early stages of the book he talks about riding in a taxi cab with this character that he he nicknames buckley mm-hmm. uh, and Buckley's very interested in the world. Buckley's asking – like he recognizes Sagan um, eventually and so realizes he's the TV science guy. So he starts asking him all these questions about ancient aliens and the lost city of Atlantis mm-hmm. and all these questions. And Sagan is just kind of having to break his heart over and over again saying, well, yeah, there's no evidence for that. The evidence is, is super shaky on that. And, and he, you know, he points out that, that Buckley here is not – you know he's not a dum dum he's he's a he has this curiosity about the world right he wants to be odd he wants science uh but for various reasons that that uh, that sagan gets to gets into in the book um the media and and science communicators even have not reached him have not provided him the meal that he he that he really wants and he and that he needs mm. um it, it, instead he's left with the the junk food of pseudoscience, and that's all he has to feast on yeah. And it's
1: unfortunate that that's the dynamic, but you can see why it is because giving good explanations based on facts and real evidence and rigorous analysis – that That is all constrained. You know, it's constrained by all these limits imposed by reality. There are only so many things you can say that are actually logically correct and follow from your premises. There are only so many things that you can actually prove with real hard evidence. You can use your imagination to make up all kinds of alternative crazy things to say that can be interesting and you're not constrained by those problems.
0: Yeah. Um, and, you know, b- back to the idea of, like, how do you communicate science then? How do you discuss crazy ideas and balance them? Um, y- you do see a lot of this done very well in uh, Sagan's book here. For instance, he talks about UFOs a bit because mm-hmm. uh, it-, it was then as it is now still a a, a topic of uh, – of, of, of great interest, you know. Mm-hmm. People hear about UFOs. If you're like uh, like me, you grew up watching unsolved mysteries, and you're just bombarded with these ideas.
1: Though I feel like UFOs are uh, less discussed now than they used to be. I feel like that was a much bigger domain of pseudoscience in decades past.
0: Yes, but we still have these stories of, of UFOs um, that we're that we draw on, right? Yeah. Uh, and one thing that that Sagan does really well in this is that he he talks about, say, the the Cold War sightings of UFOs, and to what extent the the government was looking. Into these, mm-hmm. and he goes into say weather balloons, uh, uh, observation uh, balloon, to high altitude balloon technology, and we've all heard that uh, brought up as a as, a, as an explanation for unidentified flying objects before. Uh, but Sagan does a great job in this of really breaking down like what sort of technology, uh, balloon-based technology was being used at the time, not only for observational purposes, but also for uh, intelligence purposes mm-hmm. uh, 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 by, by the United States uh, against the Soviet Union and, and how this would have played into possible um, reports of unidentified flying objects. And, and this is a case where, yeah, we've all heard the essentially the, the boring story at this point of somebody seeing Something unexplainable in the sky, and thinking it's aliens, and having to embellishment or turn to embellishment to to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. But these real stories of, of 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 weather balloon technology and what we were doing with them at the time is is even more fascinating, just because I feel like fewer people uh, have heard the story. Yeah, and indeed, it's a story I wouldn't mind returning to in a future episode. Well, another thing I would say, though, is that
1: by virtue of being true, that story also connects with an ecosystem of other true ideas, mm-hmm. whereas pseudoscientific beliefs don't lead you anywhere. You know, they don't lead you anywhere fruitful. Like a true belief leads you to other true discoveries and a, a mistaken or false or embellished belief does not.
0: Yeah, I mean because it seems like you're, if you're suddenly interested in hollow earth – ideas mm-hmm. then you're then at best you're going to wind up reading about more ridiculous myths about like Nazi super science or something and how Hitler's on the moon now or something to that effect mm-hmm. i guess with with It's going to vary depending on what your pseudoscience is. I guess there are examples where, yeah, if you're interested enough in ancient aliens, you might find yourself learning more about, say, Mayan or Aztec civilization than you would have otherwise. But it's going to be a tainted understanding of it. Right.
1: Well, you can only really get there by – abandoning or ignoring your initial premise. What I'm saying is like pseudoscientific beliefs and stuff don't become useful premises in future
0: arguments oh, or discoveries. Yeah. You can't really build a, a house on that foundation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, a, this is a book that, of, of course, is as relevant now as it, as it ever was, uh, especially with talk of post-truth, alternative facts, uh, and uh, just a disgustingly anti-science trend in uh, American politics of late. Uh, so that's why this is a book I strongly, re- strongly recommend to everybody. It's available in all reading and listening formats right now. Um, he Sagan spends a, a lot of time in this discussing the allure of pseudoscience, but also how it gains power and he points uh, he points the to, to the role of uh, of our relinquishing of civil controls and scientific education and how this allows for the infection of pseudoscience and pseudoscientific belief to spread. He mm-hmm. points to examples in in prewar Germany also a uh, post communist russia a situation where as the as sort of the the controls are are relaxed. Uh, there is less science, less scientific understanding in the, in the, uh, among everyday common people, not talking about the, the scientific establishment of the mm-hmm. Soviet Union, which of course uh, was significantly advanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the average person, when the controls are loosened, what do they have to turn to? They end up turning to some of these science, pseudoscientific ideas, Sagan argues. So it's a good cautionary tale for, for, for today, for any age really. I just want to read a, a couple of quick quotes from the book itself uh, just to give you some of Sagan's words. Um, for a short one, he, points, he makes this point. He says, pseudoscience is embraced, it might be argued, in exact proportion as real science is misunderstood. Hmm. Which I think is a, is an interesting way of looking at it, a very, very uh, apt way of looking at it.
1: Kind of zero-sum competition between them. It's not like you can both build up your scientific understanding and your embrace of pseudoscience at the same time. They sort of uh, – they, they exist in necessary competition with one another and one undermines the other. So if you hold one, it's undercutting y- your stock of the other. Right. You know, one of the most important things in this area, which I've been thinking about a lot lately, is – The danger of – when you're talking about embrace of scientific thinking, critical thinking, skepticism, rationality, all these subjects that are uh, very useful and very important – that you want to be careful not to let it turn into a kind of back padding exercise, where mm-hmm. like you know we do such a such a good job of being rational and being skeptical, and there are all these other people out here who have all these mistaken beliefs, and 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 letting it, um, I don't know, I, I feel like I see this occasionally, in, say the skeptic community right. is a kind of. Um, over-reliance on self-congratulation for being skeptical, whereas really the greatest job we have to do in this is being critical of ourselves. I know it, it's easier to say that than it is to actually do it. I mean, I know I'm very often not sufficiently critical of myself. Uh, but but that's what we should really be focusing on, like remembering like this isn't something other people do. This is something I do.
0: Yeah, and, I agree. And and I I, I I say that I have to Say that I I have to watch myself as well, you know. I mean, yeah. I have to ask myself, well, this particular hypothesis, uh, am I? Why am I attracted to it? Like, mm-hmm. is is it speaking truth to reality, or is it speaking? to some other need inside me you know some yeah. religious need perhaps that is not being fulfilled by something else in uh, in culture
1: yeah i feel like i have to be one of the ways in which i have to be very careful here is like i feel that i am irrationally attracted to overly interesting or cool ideas yeah i've brought this up a lot when we talk about the bicameral mind idea. Now, of course, as I've said before on the show, you know, we did an episode about this last year. It's come up a good bit since then. It's one of the most interesting hypotheses I've ever come across. I wouldn't say it's just like, you know, it's just flagrant pseudoscience. Like, James was a psychologist. He brings a lot of evidence and interesting argument. But then again, it's a radical hypothesis. He asks you for, you know, to go along with a very radical path with him. And so I, I don't ultimately accept his hypothesis. I I think he was probably wrong, but I wonder if I give it even more credence than it deserves just because of how thought-provoking and cool it feels in my mind to contemplate.
0: Well, uh, the bicameral mind uh, hypothesis, uh, one way I have of looking at it is, I ask myself, is it a better hypothesis for for the human experience than other uh, theories of consciousness? And I have to say, uh, largely no. I think we have some better... uh, working theories of what's going on such as say attention schema theory you know just ways of thinking about how our limited cognitive uh, abilities are focused on particular tasks Mm -hmm. on the other hand if you say is it a better hypothesis than say established religion then i would say yes and that's i think that's one of the reasons that that i'm drawn to it is the part of me that wants to make sense of tales in which men speak to gods or or gods speak to men, Mm -hmm. Uh, the part of me that wants that magic to be real, um, then in those cases, the bicameral mind is a far better explanation Uh than... Gods are real, or that magical beings and spirits and elves are an actual reality. You know, uh, you
1: can almost like use it as a personally satisfying mythology, even if you don't think it's necessarily a successful scientific theory.
0: Yeah, so it's. I feel like it's a weird duck for me, and that mm-hmm. I can't think of another hypothesis that kind of, uh, you know, occupies that middle ground. Yeah. But we'll get back to to the bicameral mind in a little bit, actually. Uh, I'm going to close out this section on on Sagan, though, by reading uh, one more quote um, from uh, A Candle in the Dark. Science is more than a body of knowledge. It is a way of thinking. I have a foreboding of an America in my children or grandchildren's time when the United States is a service and information economy. When nearly all the key manufacturing industries have slipped away to other countries, when awesome technological powers are in the hands of a very few and no one representing the public interest can even grasp the issues, when the people have lost the ability to set their own agendas or knowledgeably question those in authority, when clutching our crystals and nervously consulting our horoscopes, our critical faculties in decline, unable to distinguish between what feels good and what's true, we slide almost without noticing back into superstition and darkness. Now <laughs> what, year, what year was this? <laughs> this was uh, this was ninety-five. But um I I don't want to I, I know that sounds grim, but but ultimately this book uh is making the argument, and Sagan is making the argument, and I think this is an argument that holds true, is that we don't don't have to slip into darkness. Mm-hmm. We have to value science, we have mm-hmm. to value scientific thinking scientific education and we have to to think skeptically uh, about the the world around us um but there but but as long as we don't abandon these pillars that have that are that are holding up civilization um there is hope it makes you realize how important how functionally
1: practically important inspiring awe in the natural world really is because if you inspire people to feel a sense of awe with real science and real discoveries and critical thinking about the natural world and all of its phenomena, then that is a motivation to make people want to know more about what's true about the natural world, which is a motivation for them to be scientific, to be skeptical, to be critical thinkers. And so so inspiring us to have a sense of awe about what's true and what's real – literally creates a better society
0: right and uh so yeah i would urge everyone out there if you value these uh these ideas then uh then celebrate them share them with others and certainly vote with them as well uh wherever you happen to be if you have the power to vote uh where you live uh think about this when you consider uh the people uh, and the organizations that you throw your support behind All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to jump in with one of Joe's uh, recommendations for this year's summer reading.
1: All right, we're back. All right. So as I mentioned before, uh, I I wanted to talk about a book that hadn't really come up on the podcast before. And that book, the first one I've picked for this episode, is a book called Black Hole Blues and Other Songs from Outer Space by Jan Levin. This was first published in 2016. And Jan Levin is an astrophysicist and an author. She's a professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard College, which is part of Columbia University. Mm -hmm. And she's written several popular science books, including a novel about Kurt Gödel and Alan Turing. Oh, wow. Um, but in this book, Black Hole Blues, it's an account, almost what I would call a nonfiction novel, mm-hmm. about the search for gravitational waves and the quest to build the LIGO facility or the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave. Wave Observatory. This
0: is the we have, we discussed this a little bit on our um, our in our black hole episodes that we did earlier this year.
1: Yes, uh, and so this this book is focused specifically on gravitational waves, and I call it almost a novel because for a science book, this one spends a lot of time, a lot of well invested time, I would say, richly portraying its characters. So much so that kind of like when Levin quotes them from interviews, I felt like I could see them and hear their voices and imagine them speaking. Uh, But of course, these characters aren't just characters. They are real scientists. And the work that they're doing is leading up to one of the biggest scientific discoveries of our lifetime. Now, Robert, do you remember when the gravitational waves observation was announced in – I think it was announced in 2016, but the observation happened in September 2015. Do you remember what you thought then?
0: I remember when – yeah, I remember when I first heard about it. Mm-hmm. I uh, I have to admit that I was like, this is a big deal, but I don't really – I would not be able to explain to you why it's a big deal. Yeah, you know?
1: same here. I, I had to go looking stuff up. And so I was reading a lot about it at the time, trying to understand what was important about it. Um, and you, so a lot of people, I think, had that experience. They understood that it was a big deal, but they they didn't know exactly why it was a big deal. In fact, I remember when the announcement came out, I was here in the office and I was talking to one of our colleagues here, and, and uh, you can imagine our colleagues here in the office, smart people interested in science. But he was saying to me, basically, he was like, yeah, all the scientists are saying this is important, but I can't figure out why it's so interesting or important. Mm-hmm. Like, it, I think to a lot of people, it had the texture of a kind of – dry observation so it's like okay so we saw some waves what what does that mean like there was nothing very uh, there were no strong image people could latch on to about it there was nothing that had all that much of a personality about it
0: Right, it's it's in that that astrophysics uh, black hole territory we've discussed before, where it's it's really hard to have much in the way of personal engagement with the topic.
1: But if you if you get into the subject, you realize this is one of the most profound and awe inspiring things we have ever discovered mm-hmm. as human beings. Uh, I, I remember people saying similar things like in 2012 when physicists announced that experiments at the Large Hadron Collider had found a particle they believed was uh, the Higgs boson, and I remember then a lot of people were. Are like well, I get that the physicists are excited about this, but I don't really understand what it means or why it's important. So if if you felt that way about gravitational waves at the time, this is a great book to read. It explains the significance of the discovery, it puts it in context, it it gives you all that awe, but it also mainly focuses on telling a story about the project to detect gravitational waves, how it eventually succeeded despite all these many obstacles. And I want to discuss that aspect of it in a minute. But first, I just want to give you a taste. So I want to read a passage from Levin's opening chapter of her book. And the opening chapter has been published, I think, in a couple of places online. So you can go read that yourself if you want to check that out before you decide whether or not you want to get the rest of the book. Uh, but just to read from her, her very opening, quote, Somewhere in the universe, two black holes collide. As heavy as stars, as small as cities. Literally black, the complete absence of light. Holes, empty hollows. Tethered by gravity, in their final seconds together, the black holes course through thousands of revolutions about their eventual point of contact, churning up space and time until they crash and merge into one bigger black hole, an event more powerful than any since the origin of the universe, outputting more than a trillion times the power of a billion suns. The black holes collide in complete darkness. None of the energy exploding from the collision comes out as light. No telescope will ever see the event. That profusion of energy emanates from the coalescing holes in a purely gravitational form, as waves in the shape of space-time, as gravitational waves. An astronaut floating nearby would see nothing. But the space she occupied would ring, deforming her, squeezing, then stretching. If close enough, her auditory mechanism could vibrate in response. She would hear the wave. In empty darkness, she could hear space-time ring, barring death by black hole. Gravitational waves are like sounds without a material medium. When black holes collide, they make a sound.
0: That's wonderful. I feel like uh, that's she, good writing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially again when you're dealing with something that can be so difficult to grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, she she manages to, to to bring it to beautiful life there. Uh, but
1: another thing that I think is fantastic about this book
0: is about the way
1: she tells the story of the LIGO project and the discovery and all the characters involved. She really explores the role of personality and politics and money and ego in one of these most important scientific projects in recent history, like – You can often get the feeling when you're reading about science just from, you know, say articles in the news or in Scientific American, whatever, that scientists are often presented as sort of like mechanistic uh, discovery machines. Mm -hmm. Like a scientist appears. You've never heard of them before. They're quoted in an article saying what they found in a new study. So the version – the face of them you get is – a a person who appears to deliver a newly discovered piece of information, and for some reason, I feel like this—at least in my mind—it can contribute to this feeling that they're just sort of like machines whirring in the background yeah. that eventually churn out information.
0: Yeah, like with with uh, LIGO in particular. Uh, I remember when uh, when we were reading up on this for the the black hole uh, episode. Uh, um, I certainly had the thought, like, I wonder if at any point someone had to pitch this to a politician? Oh, did they? And <laughs> this how... <laughs> book is all about that. <laughs> and I, I mean, you can t- perhaps you can you can clue me in here, but I, I can only imagine how difficult it would be able to ex- to explain what this was, especially with pictures, mm-hmm. to uh, a politician who, generally speaking, it's it's an exceedingly safe bet that if you're talking about a politician, you're talking about somebody with very limited uh, scientific understanding. Well, you don't even have to get to the politician
1: level before politics become an issue, because there's politics within. The groups of scientists who are anticipating mm. the politics of politicians, oh yes, okay, because what they 're having to do is figure out okay we we want to try to make experimental progress. But we know funding is going to be limited. So what do we do in order to get the best chance at getting the funding that would get us to the experimental result? And so there are arguments about like, should we try to do this incrementally in small little waves of experiments that get bigger and bigger? Or should we try to go in all at once and build a huge facility that can really prove what we want to show? Um, And there are serious debates about this. And the characters in it are human. They're very human. And there's something just truly fascinating and surprising about the story this book tells that somehow from the meta-organism of science... Powerful, profound, objective discoveries are sort of cobbled together and achieved by collections of squabbling flawed individuals through this sort of taped-together ramshackle process. Uh, It's not a book about the genius of any one individual scientist, though there are very smart scientists in it. It's a book about a sort of emergent impersonal genius,
0: a collective genius through process. And then, I mean that really goes back to what we were talking about earlier with uh, with some of Sagan's points about how uh, like one of the points he made in 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 the in that book is that is that you can't just teach like what science does. You can't just teach the, the triumphs of science. You have to teach the, also the failures of science, the necessary oh, yeah. failures of science. There are a and, lot of failures in this book. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 essential to understanding it. So, I mean, so that when a particular failure or uh, or a particular study that gets rejected, whatever, we, we've all seen examples of this, when that makes the news, people aren't going, don't think, well, I, I guess we can't trust these scientists because they got it wrong. Be- because them getting it wrong is essential. Yeah. Yeah, it's an
1: essential part of the process, and it it actually makes the process work. Mm -hmm. Um, I also wanted to say just the epilogue to this book is amazing. It gave me goosebumps multiple times, uh, both in its account of the LIGO scientists trying to verify the first recorded signal, and then when it sort of placed that observation in the context of the entire history of the observable universe. So I I would say this is a great book if you want to know more about physics in a way that's very clear and easy to understand. It's very well-written. And even more than that, it's a great book about the nature of science and scientists themselves, not as all-knowing gods, not as discovery machines, but as kind of scrappy, weird, clever, deeply human characters who have systems of thought and
0: tools in place that eventually help them get it right. Awesome. Well, we're going to take one more break and when we come back, we'll discuss some fiction. All right, we're back. So here's another one I don't think I have mentioned on the podcast before.
1: And this one is a book called The Soul of an Octopus, A Surprising Exploration into the Wonder of Consciousness by Cy Montgomery from 2015. Uh, So uh, Cy Montgomery is a naturalist and author. She's written books about other – most of her books seem to be about animals, but this is the only one of hers I've read. Um, But – so I already – think I knew sort of how interesting octopuses were at least in theory like I'd you know I'd read all of their crazy feats of escape uh, their inquiring play behaviors mm-hmm. the way they, they they play with different objects and sort of penetrate locked boxes and things like that their surprising predation strategies the way they squeeze through holes only a tiny fraction of the size of their bodies the way they seal themselves in their dens with rock coverings or armor themselves with coconut halves the way they taste with their Scan and change color to mimic their surroundings with this kind of frightening accuracy. Uh, all this stuff, but what I did not know before reading this book was how emotional I could feel about an octopus.
0: So, so you're you're not recommending this to like hardcore sushi enthusiasts? I think. Uh, <laughs> definitely not. If you
1: if you want to keep eating octopus without (laughs) thinking about a a book that made you cry. Uh, This book is just an absolute delight. I'm not sure exactly what genre to call it. I would say it's partially a science book about zoology, biology, marine invertebrates, primarily the octopus. So it it cites a lot of research in it and talks a lot about observations of octopus behavior. But that's only part of it. It's also partially a personal memoir specifically about – and I am not kidding one bit here – Love, affection, and the complicated personal relationships between humans and cephalopods. Uh, There is a lot of human and octopus love in this book. And it's also partially a philosophical and occasionally theological reflection on the nature of consciousness and mind and people's beliefs about the soul and how those concepts could or could not and should or should not be applied to animals like the octopus. Oh, nice. So this book's really kind of got it all. It's full of interesting facts and observations and anecdotes from experts about octopuses, but it's also got this moving personal narrative that I'm pretty sure if you have feelings will make you cry about octopuses. And I mean really I literally cried about an octopus in the first chapter of this book and it is uh it it's a it's got a thoughtful and earnest consideration of what consciousness consists of whether other animals possess it what it would be like to have the mind of an octopus um there's here's just one example of the kinds of thoughts about octopus consciousness that are explored in this book. So you have to consider the way the octopus nervous system is put together. It is very different than our mammalian nervous system where we've got a brain where most of our neurons are and then you've got a spinal column and, and you know nerves reaching out throughout the body that can send information back and forth. Uh, but, but basically, we think pretty much all of the bulk of the information processing happens in the brain. Yes. An octopus has a brain, but in a significant way, it looks like the body itself and not just the brain does a lot of the thinking uh, with, with neurons loaded in different parts of the body, specifically its individual arms. And the arms pass nerve signals along within each other that never even seem to reach the brain. So if you have a nervous system like this and if you consider what would happen if there is such a thing as consciousness or experience in an animal like this – what would that consciousness be like? Would it even make sense to believe it was confined to a single sensation of self? Like, could it be possible um, to have consciousness without having a sense of self? You are conscious, but you have no concept of I. Instead, there are sort of like multiple networks all connected that are having an experience but don't necessarily identify themselves as a
0: self. I mean, this is the sort of thing that it, it really makes makes me sound i mean it makes me feel silly when we do ask questions like what is the what is the the, the mind of, of the octopus you mm-hmm. know like like uh, in in the sense that we are trying to uh just compare it to what we have uh-huh. like the, this this narrow uh human uh you know cognitive dimension that we we place so much emphasis on w- what uh, is the octopus's human mind like yeah yeah <laughs> and it's like it doesn't have a human mind it has this this other form yeah. of, uh, of, of 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 cognition, of of of, of, uh, of neural control, and it, it by trying to compare it to us and using our minds as the the gold standard, uh, it it just it sets up this in, this impossible task, right? Where we yeah. just say, oh well, it's not like it's not like what we have, so it 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 can't be uh, it can't be on the same level. It's like what kind of car do, does this animal have? it doesn't have a car? It has a motorcycle. Ah. <laughs> well, it's a lesser being. You've just heard the call for an octopus motorcycle
1: gang movie. <laughs> I would watch it. We, well, we, they made werewolves on
0: wheels. Why not octopods on wheels? It would make one rad, um, what do you call it, the, the cut, the, the motorcycle jacket. The cut? Is that what it's called? That's what they call the it called it. vest or whatever? Yeah, but they called it a cut, I think, okay. on Sons of Anarchy. I, uh, Sons of Anarchy is where I get most of my... Uh, biker knowledge, that in werewolves on wheels.
1: I, I don't know much about biker lore that's not in <laughs> werewolves on wheels. I'm just saying it would make a cool
0: uh, MC logo. Uh,
1: yeah, it would. But then again, I'm, I think about how, so if an octopus was to drive a motorcycle, it might have trouble. Mm. It might have trouble because I wonder if it's arms that are controlling, say, the, the different handles of the bike would really coordinate all that well. Because- Another thing that's very weird that the book talks about is the concept that the individual arms of an octopus have individual personalities mm. as much as individual octopuses have different personalities than one another. And they very much seem to. Like there there are lots of people who work with octopuses who have found that an octopus will have continually more shy or bold arms. It's almost as as if the arms are minds within the overall body that can express themselves in different ways. Huh.
0: That is fascinating.
1: So what if you had a shy arm and a bold arm or like a peaceful arm and an angry arm? It seems like that kind of thing could actually be possible with an octopus.
0: Interesting. Huh. But like I
1: mentioned earlier, a lot of this book is also – it's sort of a narrative memoir. It's like about the relationships between the author and other humans and octopuses. And these relationships often seem, if this makes any sense, to actually be based on mutual friendship and affection. There are these large passages about people including the author just – touching octopuses and letting octopuses touch them and it you know it's possible maybe the love and relationship is an illusion like a mere projection from the minds of the people who spend a lot of time touching and feeding octopuses but they seem very convinced. And just as a point of comparison, like what if somebody told you that your relationship with your favorite pet, your dog or whatever, was just a projection of your mind and your dog had no mind or experience and was just exhibiting stimulus response behavior? You know, you can't rule that out as a possibility. We have to say scientifically that as far as we know that's possible, it just really doesn't seem true to people's experience. Mm-hmm. And then again, on the other hand, the human relationship with the octopus is such an alien kind of relationship. These are these are not dogs. These are not mammals. They're not even vertebrates. They might as well be from another planet. They're clearly very intelligent based on their behavior and their problem-solving abilities. But the nature of their intelligence is so unbelievably strange to us. And one part of the book talks about – you know, So there, there are all these sort of like cuddling sessions between humans and octopods in this book. And so you've got these sessions where uh, octopuses in aquariums are cuddling with their caretakers, embracing voluntarily with their arms, stroking each other in a way that say a human and a dog would share physical contact and affection. But then this often ends with the octopus pulling, pulling <laughs> with this enormous strength, trying to pull you down into the water, into its tank. So what's it doing there? I mean it seemed to be excited to see you showing positive displays when you show up. It wants to touch you and all that. And then it starts to pull you in. What's going – is it trying to eat you? Is it trying to drown you? Is it trying to come – see if you'll come into the water and play with it? There there are so many wonderful mysteries to consider about the mind of an octopus if such a thing exists and we can't even necessarily – comprehend the cognition behind the behaviors even though there's clearly something complex going on
0: uh, I, that reminds me a bit of a, a jonathan colton song about mm-hmm. uh, i think it was called i crush everything <laughs> I could be wrong on that but it's the it's a a, a a tragic love song of a, of a giant squid that falls in love with love with ships Aww. and it goes to embrace them, but it cannot help but crush and pull them under. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'd like to hear that. Uh, but another thing, so but so I
1: will say, um, I, I want to offer a couple of caveats about the book in a second. But I, I wholeheartedly recommend this book, despite whatever disagreements I have with the author on individual points. Uh, she, she's a great writer. It's a great story. It'll really make you think about other animals. Uh, and the the cool part is I also noticed she writes a lot of children's books, and I imagine she would be great at this.
0: Yes, and I'm actually pretty excited about one that is sadly not out yet. It doesn't come out until uh, September, September 25th, I believe, of this year, Mm -hmm. but it's titled Inky's Amazing Escape, How a Very Smart Octopus Found His Way Home, (laughs) Uh, and and it it is by Cy Montgomery, and then it's illustrated by uh, Amy Schimler Safford. And, uh, I've, I've looked at some of the pages, uh, that are available. You, and it, it looks, it looks wonderful. It's going to deal with, a, an octopus that escapes from, uh, you know, a, a human habitat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I believe it's going to be an exploration of some of the themes, uh, that we've just, you've just discussed, but of course, uh, uh, aimed and condensed, uh, for, for, for children to read or for parents to read with their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks great. It's available for pre-order now, uh, I accidentally purchased another octopus book when I was looking for this one. Another octopus children's book? Yes. Or,
1: yeah. No, so not the soul of an octopus, but the children's book.
0: Right. I accidentally purchased, thinking I was I was grabbing uh, the Cy Montgomery book. I grabbed one called Octopus Escapes again. <laughs> by Laurie Ellen Angus that is currently available for purchase. And uh, and this one is actually really great too. This oh. one is a beautifully illustrated book that just shows uh, uh, instead of an, an octopus escaping from uh, human captivity, mm-hmm. it's an octopus trying to feed, try to su- trying to sustain itself in the natural world and having to uh, elude various predators to do so. Mm-hmm. And it's one of these these wonderful kids' books that – it doesn't anthropomorphize uh, or, or overly anthropomorphize an animal. It depicts actual um, predatory and, and defense uh, activities mm-hmm. uh, by, and behaviors by the animal, uh, but does so in a very relatable and child appropriate way. Mm. Well, that's a happy accident. Yeah, yeah, I read that one too my son this morning. Nice. And he uh, he loved it. Uh while I'm on the the topic of children's literature, uh-huh. uh since it seems like I, I read a lot of children's literature these days <laughs> since I do have a 6-year-old, uh-huh. um and I, I I don't have time of course to to highlight all of the really cool children's books out there. I love it when a children's book does a great job of making a scientific topic um enjoyable and and, and graspable by a, a child. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and there are, I read a lot of dinosaur books because my, my child, like a lot of children, really loves dinosaurs and, and well he should. Right. Uh, but I recently ran across one titled Explorer Dinosaurs, dinosaurs in all caps with an exclamation point. And this is a book by Nick Forshaw and Andy Forshaw. And it's part of the Explorer series with books on bugs, mammals, and plants. And it's it's just so good. It, 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 technically, it's illustrated by Andy Forshaw and written by Nicholas Forshaw, Patrick Skipworth, and Christopher Lloyd. Not that Christopher Lloyd, different Christopher Lloyd. Uh, and it's published by What on Earth Books. It, it delivers... In ways that a lot of children's dinosaurs books do, you know, it has some wonderful illustrations of the creatures, uh, you know, depictions of their anatomy, discussions of paleontology. Uh, but I, I do find that, first of all, this one goes a little deeper than a lot of uh, kids' dinosaurs book dinosaur books. For instance, mm-hmm. it gets into the K T extinction uh, event. It talks about uh, uh, various other major extinction events that have occurred uh, d- during uh, uh, Earth's history, mm-hmm. uh, even the one uh, that we are uh, seemingly in right now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the, the illustrations as well in this book are, are, are a different type of illustration than I've seen recently in children's dinosaurs books because generally what I, I, I see, I see of course like sort of classical realistic examples of paleo art. You know, where you have some really gorgeous dinosaurs that look real. Mm-hmm. And I love that kind of stuff. Then you have like terrible CGI, which there's way too much of in dinosaur uh, books for children. And then you Even have- Even in books? Not like TVs oh, no. and movies? Straight books. up books. You'll see book after book where you- Computer
1: generated bo- images in books. Yeah, printed of, books. Of
0: dinosaurs. And it, it seems like it's been a popular thing the last 20 years. And uh, I, I hate most of it. Even if the content is good. If like there's a terrible dinosaur illustration, I'm, I'm instantly thrown off. And then likewise, sometimes its stuff is too cartoony. But this stuff strikes a really wonderful balance. These illustrations feel like animals, but there's just enough um, like cartoonish whimsy to them that they, they feel unique. So this is, a, this is a wonderful book. It also has a six-foot foldout of dinosaurs presented in chronological order. Uh, so I highly recommend that one as well. And finally, b- before we close out the nonfiction portion of the podcast, we receive a lot of free books from publishers here uh, at the show promoting new publications. Most of these look awesome and we don't have time to really even use <laughs> most of them on the show. Uh, others we're we're getting around to. We have like a, a, a growing stack of books and and authors and experts that we're like, oh, man, we've got we to have this author on to discuss this book. And sometimes it takes several months or a year <laughs> mm-hmm. to get around to it. Um but I wanted to highlight uh, uh, just really quickly here a book called "How to Live in Space: Everything You Need to Know for the Not So Distant Future" by Colin Stewart, who's a fellow at the Royal Astronomical Society and an accomplished astronomy journalist. This one is going to be published by Smithsonian Books, also this September. But it's, but it is also available for pre order. Mm-hmm. So if you, I would recommend this if, if you were a a space sci fi writer. Pick it up. If you're planning to go into space, maybe read a copy just in case you missed something. But it's a perfect crash course in the history, the present, and the future of space exploration and space travel, of of humanity's life beyond our planet. It's divided into three sections. You have uh, training – Life in Space and the Future, which deals with space tourism, the moon, Mars, asteroids, and interstellar travel. So, uh, again, I, I highly recommend uh, this book. If you're, if you're into space, if you want to write some sci-fi, if you're just into science fiction, um, it's definitely worth picking up. Very, very uh, readable. So I do want to
1: say before we leave the subject of the octopus, uh, The Soul of an Octopus by Cy Montgomery, while, while I do think it is a fantastic book – I also want to say that I do not necessarily agree with all of the ideas she expresses in the book because – there's an ongoing debate about animal cognition, animal consciousness, and all that stuff, right? And Montgomery is clearly opinionated. Like, Mm -hmm. you can definitely tell she believes that an octopus has some form of consciousness, and she often reads intentions into animal behavior in a way that would probably not be strictly appropriate if she were, say, like researching animal behavior in a lab. But the book is not necessarily intended as an unbiased scientific investigation. It's sort of about the, the the facts and the science about octopuses but also about the felt experience of having a relationship with a non-human animal and a potential alien mind. And as I mentioned earlier, we know what that feels like if you've got like a dog, right? Mm-hmm. And a, an unbiased observer in a lab might not want to speculate about what a dog's mind is like. But if you've got a pet dog and you interact with it all the time, you're going to attribute a mind to it. Almost everybody does. And so a lot of the book is just about that experience but not with a dog, with something very slimy and writhing that sometimes wants to pull you into the deep. (laughs) One last idea I want to mention before we move on is the idea of the word soul. So soul is there in the title of the book. And I often am really frustrated that there is not a widely used secular word for soul divorced of all the supernatural connotations of the soul. Like I think the soul is... Such a useful concept and doesn't have to be bound up in supernatural ideas like dualism or ghosts or the soul surviving the body. What I mean is soul in the sense of the most enduring and important parts of your personality, your integrity, your values and your value, uh, the core of who you are as a person. And I think soul in that sense is a useful concept and it's a very powerful word that no other word in English really substitutes for. I, I, I sometimes find myself wondering if it can be rescued for this usage without always implying something about supernaturalism to people.
0: Hmm. I find myself using and, and thinking about the term mind state mm-hmm. uh, more and more like that as a sort of uh, uh, a less loaded term for soul.
1: Yeah, but I feel like that that doesn't convey all of those kind of um, permanent and important qualities that soul does. You know, like you, you could tell somebody that that their behavior, you know, reflects something about their soul. Mm. And that's saying something different than saying it reflects something about their mind state. Though if you say soul, the person thinks you're talking about something magic.
0: I think it's part of the problem though, right? Soul has come to represent a number of ideas that uh, that. That it, at the very least, like speaking kindly about them, cannot be proven. Yeah. Uh, and, and and I'm not just talking about the idea that there is something in us, there is something of us that survives death. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that there is this kind of uh, like moral creature uh, within all of us, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, it's obviously got connotations that branch out in all different kinds of directions uh though if uh, anyway if you if you do explore the book there is an interesting part it's very brief but she does also contemplate the theological implications of octopus minds and octopus souls uh and and I thought that was an interesting consideration too sort of from a religious perspective that I'd never considered before
0: like is there an afterlife for an octopus uh no not so much that okay. but uh like our responsibility like a, the responsibilities of a religious person to an octopus
1: No, more like straightforwardly, like if there is such a thing as a soul, do octopuses have souls? Hmm. Like do dogs have souls? Well, do octopuses have souls? And would they have one soul or would they? I don't know. Each limb, like you say,
0: like multiple souls. Or maybe
1: even that doesn't make sense.
0: Yeah, it's almost like this is a problematic term that uh, doesn't really apply to anything in the natural world. Or does it? The, The discussion continues. But anyway, soul of an octopus,
1: big thumbs up from me. Okay, looks like we're gonna have to call it there for today because as we mentioned, uh, we started talking about books and then we talked for way too long for a single podcast episode. So we're gonna make this part one of our two-part summer reading episode. If you want to
0: continue the conversation, join us
1: again next time.
0: That's right. In the meantime, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, including past summer reading episodes. Uh, And oh yeah, if you want uh, more information, you want links, you want titles, you want the specific spelling for some of these authors we're discussing, there will be a list of the books discussed here on the landing page for this episode at stufftoblowyourmind.com. If you want to support the show, rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Big thanks as always to
1: our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you want to get in touch with us directly, let us know feedback on this episode or any other episode to suggest uh, books we should read, to suggest topics we should do in the future, to just say hi, let us know where you listen from, how you found out about the show. You can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.